This is Film Tank. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. We're going to make film history. Can you say that again? Just the way you say it. Baby, it's time to lose their head. They won't know what they're looking at, but why they like it, but they'll know they want it. Hello again, everyone, and welcome in to episode 238 of our little podcast called Film Tank. As per usual, Alex Diegman here with you, along with my pals Nick Cheney. Hey! Hey! And Tucson Egan. Hello! Hello, friend. And our uh, friend Anna Bodazadu, who uh, is firmly holding the rank of our number one guest. Yay! Hello! Thank you so much for having me back. Yay. I feel like it feels like the scene in Batman where he's like, you are my number one guy. That seems a little bit weird, though, because Jack Nicholson like forced them to put that guy in the movie. So that's a little weird. Really? Yeah, that guy's apparently his, like, friend in real life, and he's like, uh, I'll do the movie, but I want this guy here as my number one guy. And they're like, uh, okay, whatever you want. Whatever whatever he wants. Yeah, oh, that's so like, funny. Hmm. So, uh, today on Film Tank, we are reviewing the 2002 horror film Cabin Fever, which stars a bunch of people you've probably never heard of, was directed by uh, someone you may have heard of. What's a that? A lot of people grew up watching Boy Meets World, Alex Steve. Oh my god, I thought he was from uh, Malcolm in the Middle. I knew I knew who that guy <laughs> was. I'm pretty sure Malcolm in the Middle happened concurrently with this show, man. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh my god, that's so... I Okay, I am one of those people that grew up watching Boy Meets World, so I, Nick... I grew up watching Boy Meets World. Clearly not, Tucson. Oh, whatever, man. <laughs> Okay, well, there's a, there's a lot of nameless faces in, in this movie, aside from uh, Ryder Strong, who was in Boy Meets World. Anywho, uh, the film's main star, I would say, is its writer and director, which is Eli Roth, um, who's done a lot of interesting films over the years, and who I've got some thoughts on, as I'm thinking that other people may have thoughts on as well. So the film stars Jordan Ladd as Karen, uh, the previously mentioned Ryder Strong as Paul, also James DeBello as the uh, very brash character of Bert. What a name, too, for a character. Also, too, uh, Serena Vincent in this and Joey Kern as Jeff. Also, too, uh, a man who looks a little bit like Santa Claus in his IMDb picture 
Robert Harris plays Old Man Caldwell, um, otherwise known as the shop owner, who uh, we see in a couple really loud scenes in this movie. <sighs> they are indeed very, very loud, and I'm not talking about just in volume. Oh, no, they stand out, uh, and not necessarily in a good way. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> So, Cabin Fever, uh, absolutely, um, has been thought of as a film to do on this podcast by Anna. And in fact, I will say we probably should have done this a lot sooner because she's been saying that she wanted to do an episode on this when I've asked her probably for the last five to six months. (laughs) And I keep being like, oh, okay. And then I just never bring it up again. So, anyways, she mentioned it again. And we did an ep- are going to do an episode on it because we should have done it again a long time ago. So, Anna, if you want to go first, um, tell us why you really wanted to do an episode on this. And also give your opening thoughts on Kevin Fever. Anna? Very cool. Really quickly, before... Yes. Because uh, I don't want to interrupt you uh, while you're That's talking. Uh, yeah. Are we doing a weekend review after? Because I know you said... You oh! You know what? We that. should do a weekend review first, of course. No, I just oh. wanted to, because Alex really wanted to do one, and I feel like if we yeah, get through I, this episode. I totally blanked on it, and I'm the one who said it, so. Yeah. I'm glad you no. said something, Nick. Okay. So, I guess pause that for a second. Sure. <laughs> and Anna, we'll, we'll start with you when we come back to Cabin Fever. Right. But. Can't wait. We are going to do a weekend review, and I am both driving force behind it. Because I have a film that I really want to talk about, so I guess I will start this if that's all right with everybody. Sure. Of course. Yep. So, uh, I only have one film I want to talk about during our weekend review, and that is the recently released Netflix film, The Old Guard, which stars Charlize Theron and also features Matthias Schoenwerts, Chidaway Ejidafor. Uh, I always screw up his name. No, you got it right. Did I? Yeah, good job, All man. Right. You That's like the first it, time for everything. The the pronunciation of the uh, the the last name is like you know like a little bit fuzzy, but you got it. You got it. Okay, man. You know what? That's a step in the right direction. It really is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then also there were some other people in this, including Kiki Lane, Marwin Kenzari, who uh, played Jafar in the live action Aladdin last year. And uh, the first thing I want to mention about this uh, is a character. Well, I guess I'll I'll wait one second, and I'll I'll say my first thought about this. And that even though I thought this was good, and I gave gave it a pretty decent rating, I feel like the biggest thing about this film is that this could have been really good, and it just couldn't get there. I don't know if that's like just a hallmark of Netflix as a brand in general, but the idea here, even if it's ripping a little bit off of the matrix in a way, like I feel like this was a really solid idea they had here. And especially for an action film um, that had some pretty solid action stars, specifically Charlize Theron, um, this could have really been a huge uh, when that was, you know, a little bit under the radar being released on Netflix uh, in the middle of the summer during COVID-19, uh, at least the first year of it. So I feel like 
even though oh, this was pretty good, this could have been really good. I, I'm just a little disappointed about that. First thing I'll say that was a huge disappointment for this was the main villain in this movie, whose uh, his name in the movie is Merrick. But the guy they got to play the main villain is the guy who played Dudley Dursley in the Harry Potter movies. And I don't know, that casting choice was just so odd to me. And like, as soon as he came on screen, I'm like, I know this guy. And I looked what up, I was like... What happened to your mom, Potter? Yeah. I was like, what oh, happened to your mom? Oh, no. It's Dudley Dursley. Like, I, and I'm sorry, that guy is typecast forever. Like, he is always going to be Dudley Dursley, no matter what he does. So that's, that's kind of unfortunate for him. But... That was a weird choice for me. Another thing about this is that this felt like a movie that honestly tapped into the Marvel Cinematic Universe and thought that they were going to become a franchise before they even put out their first film. And that just really annoys me because a standalone Netflix action film should not have a post credit scene. I I just can't get on board with that. Like if you've got the magic and your movie ends up becoming a hit and you want to continue on with it in this era where sequels are totally a thing that people do because you know, well why not take advantage of your Talk success? Of them. Yeah. But a post credit on a Netflix movie, like, and, and, ah, I don't know. I, I'm just so Can I ask annoyed. how you knew that that was going to be, like, did you actually let it go thinking there would be one? No, um, okay, I, I guess I misspoke, but it was a mid credit scene. No, okay, but that's so, totally fine. I just was curious, because that was, like, one of the first things I do when I'm watching any Netflix movie is basically turn it off immediately, so I just didn't know. Oh, well, uh, in general, I follow the same path because uh, Netflix u- movies usually aren't worth your time uh, in general. At least uh, that's been my <laughs> my findings. But, um, yeah, I, no, this was a mid-credit scene, and it was an obvious tease towards a sequel. And, uh, like, and, uh, I get it, but there's just, there's just so many weird decisions in this movie that are forward thinking instead of just embracing this one film that had actually fantastic action in it. And that's one of the biggest complaints is that the action probably could have been a little bit more of the star here. Like there are about three major action set pieces and then there's other small uh, parts that fit into it. But when the actions happen in this movie, it's actually really good in my opinion. And like gun violence and swords and medieval weapons uh, that these people have had over time because they're immortal and they've been living for between hundreds and thousands of years. Um, it, it, it's just intriguing. Like I, I, I hate to say it because I did say that the a bit of a storyline is ripping a little bit off of the matrix, at least in the story beats. And I will say this. There is a scene that is legitimately stolen from the Matrix because Charlize Theron um, gets given up by one of her immortal t- 
teammates uh, because this one immortal person wants to have the cure found so he can stop being immortal, much like um, Joe Pantoliano's character in The Matrix. Cypher, yeah. And, and Charlize Theron literally says the line, not like this. And I'm like, holy shit. Wow, that's brazen. It is. It was bad. So, and I was already thinking about the Matrix through a lot of this movie, and then that scene took place, and that was disappointing. But that's why this movie's hard because I do like Charlize Theron as an action star, and I think she's quite good uh, in scenes where she has to appear as she's fighting, even if she does have a stunt double in a lot of those. But I think that she fits the mold really well. I like the action in this movie. I really was feeling the story. And yet there are parts of this that just fell flat and just were infuriating to me. So I gave this a three out of five. And I do think that people should check it out because I think the storyline alone and a lot of the setup is totally worth the price of admission, which is your Netflix (laughs) monthly um, fee. But this was a tough one for me because I wanted this to be great after the first 20 minutes. The last thing I'll say, because I'm rambling here a bit, but there is a kill in this movie for anyone who likes like John Wick-esque action films of, of this generation that I have not seen before. And I will not spoil it, but someone's body gets just contorted in a way that it is not supposed to go. And damn, it was awesome. So I will leave it there. I enjoyed the old guard, but uh, I wanted it to be better. And um, I wish that movies just in general were better because I feel like there's a lot of times a really good premise to a film uh, and it just gets either neutered or doesn't go all the way to reach its potential. And I, I wish more of them did. So moving on to whoever wants to go next. I can go next. Yeah. Um, Oh, wow. Okay. So, uh, this past weekend, I went and visited a friend of the show, Sarah, in Minnesota, and we did our usual uh, movie marathon. I think we watched 19 movies in the span of three days. And Man, I, that's like Sundance level. Oh, yeah. You. No, I mean, it's it's nonstop, you know. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I won't say that, like, focus is... Uh, paramount during the weekend as far as uh, there's a lot of talking and whatnot but uh, i would say we saw enough of this next movie for me to properly access it and i want to share it with everybody if um we watched a movie that is an entry into a genre known as the japanese pinku which is japanese pink cinema This is referring to a genre of cinema uh, in Japan, of course, that cropped up in the 60s and still kind of goes on today uh, that essentially is kind of parallel to what American sexploitation is like. It's it's not hardcore pornography, but the point is it's a low budget that shows a lot of nudity. uh, So a lot of the plots are like, you know, women in prison films or something, you know, like that kind of sleazy type stuff. So 
I've always heard about this particular movie, uh, but I had never watched it. But I saw it streaming on an app, and I couldn't resist, so I forced Sarah to watch it as well. Uh, this is a movie from 2003, so it's not even one from the uh, you know the era of celluloid and all that. And the title alone is beautiful. It is "A Lonely Cow Weeps at Dawn," and it surrounds Noriko who is a young uh, woman, and she's a widow, who lives with her senile father-in-law. And after the death of her husband, uh, she just kind of stayed in the homestead to kind of take care of uh, her father-in-law and whatnot. But they have an interesting relationship because her father-in-law, Chukichi, uh, because he's senile, when he was at his prime, he was raising uh, cows, you know, uh, for milk and whatnot. And he doesn't realize that his favorite cow uh, is dead. So every morning, she goes out to the barn before he goes out there, and she poses like a cow and allows him to milk her. And that is the jumping off point for this movie and where it goes from there was just a lot of corners i never thought were gonna get touched uh there was some interesting real estate development there was family melodrama there was a slight critique on the bureaucracy of uh legal estate woes and um At the center of it was this weirdly touching relationship between two people who have a shared grief that neither one of them can fully process. Uh, And so they they attempt to essentially connect in an unusual manner uh, as a way to both process that grief and also distract themselves from it uh, via weird cow milking rituals. And I just want to say that if that sounds like it's your thing, it's out there. Track it down. It's only 61 minutes. And uh, I don't think you'll be disappointed. You know, I uh, I might be into that. Just because it sounds <laughs> like some weird Japanese cinema of, like in the vein of like Haosu. Um, I will say the no, premise no, is no, like... No, fuck it. <laughs> I will say this. I put it on thinking it was going to be like super ridiculous, but outside of the first scene and maybe one other scene, it's actually a weird soap opera melodrama that's like part Ozu, you know, uh, that just happens to also be a, a pink film for hire. And it was, I thought it was fascinating. Sarah was not too impressed. <laughs> <laughs> for understandable reasons but uh uh yeah it was uh from that very first scene on i think i turned it on and um sarah and i are there and her fiance just got back from the grocery store and he just walks in and it's right at the moment that the uh father-in-law just reaches over and starts to try to milk his daughter-in-law and he's just like oh boy every time <laughs> and then and then he just walked back out of the room so i have nipples greg can you milk me yeah i mean uh 
that's certainly it's so sad though because he thinks that she's the cow in that moment and then he calls the vet and he said betsy's not producing milk which i always find holy shit i find it so funny that i think the subtitles say betsy i'm like i think that's an american name i don't think he's calling her betsy (laughs) that's what you took from it yep that's great (laughs) so anyway a lonely cow weeps at dawn (laughs) now Uh, streaming (laughs) (laughs) um I'll go next, just because I don't want to talk for, like, 15 minutes in a row. So, um, the film I watched most recently is heavily inspired by Film Tank. It was, um, Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Oh! Yes! Were you also perplexed by the fact that the police cars were up on the area where they could not get to? You know what, Alex? History has vindicated me in my taste of that movie because even, <laughs> even Nick likes that movie now. I do. I love it. I can't explain that scene, but I love it. Do you mean at the parking garage? It's not a parking garage. They do not establish that that block <laughs> of concrete <laughs> is a parking garage. I think, I don't know. I, I, I have okay. some contention with that scene, but anyway. Okay. The, Anyway, I don't want to open up like a door here. (laughs) Okay. So I was was super happy to see that on Netflix because I had actually been wanting to see that for a while. Um, And, oh, man, I was so pleased with it um just it was honestly it was so good and i part of the reason i was looking forward to watching it is because i know it's one of toussaint's favorite films and i'm always down for something batman as i am a huge fan um i was so um i was pretty much blown away like i loved the animation style and it was so interesting because i felt like this film made narrative choices and narrative transitions that you see in like modern day even action films or more specifically superhero films like i thought that was that was so cool and the twist i didn't see it coming i thought that was amazing and i i don't know man i really loved it um and uh, I kept asking a bunch of questions to my boyfriend, like, while we were watching it. I was like, how come she never shows up again? And Tim's like, oh, well, she's just in this film. Like, don't worry about it. So, um, yeah. Actually. But, I mean, it <laughs> naturally. <laughs> so, I mean, it was, um, it was really, really good. And I'm glad that it's on Netflix so it can be... Um, easily rewatched. And then uh, something that I did like... Um, about then it watching it on Netflix specifically now that I think about it. Um, I know this was released in like the early nineties, I believe. Um, I like how it wasn't totally redone into like the most H most HD polished version it could possibly be. It seems like they literally just like refor- reformatted it and put it on Netflix, and I thought that was so cool because the animation from that era is truly something of its time, and I feel like it just, uh, it, it stands the test of time as well because it's truly outstanding. So I really liked that movie a lot. It was so cool. It's a great movie. It's great. Yeah. Um, 
I'm going to talk about the movie that I watched this week. Um, the one thing that I wanted to note is I love Mask of the Phantasm, so I'm really glad that Anna watched it and that she enjoyed it. Um, Andrea Beaumont doesn't show up, but she she doesn't show up as a as a major character, but she does show up in the Justice League Unlimited episode epilogue where it's revealed that Amanda Waller was responsible for uh, Terry's existence because she took gene editing uh, technology and extracted that from Batman's blood and then actually injected it into um, the the body of um, whatever his name is, Henry McGinnis, who is uh, like uh, Terry's father for all intents and purposes, but like it rewrote his genetic genetic DNA to then make it so that it was identical to that of Bruce Wayne's. It, it was fucking weird. But the thing is, is that she hired Andrea Beaumont to be the person to assassinate Terry's um, parents so that he would grow up to become Batman. And Andrea uh, refused to do it and actually confronted her. Like it's, it's a, and it's a scene where like they're yelling at each other, but you can't hear her voice, but you see her and how she's, age now she's older and it's really really fucking cool like it's just like a a full circle moment and i was like i never expected to see this character again wow look at that who would have thought yeah um so i only watched one film today uh, other than the one that we're reviewing for this week uh, because i was very fucking busy um so i i recently reviewed a film for the av club called amulet um it's by Romola uh, Garay, who has been in a lot of films like Atonement and uh, stuff like that. And uh, I really enjoyed it. It's like a, um, a horror fantasy revenge film uh, with very beautiful cinematography and great scoring and like great performances. Uh, I'd be interested in like talking about it on an episode of Film Take in the future. Uh, but without giving anything away, I would like to just say that, you know, I really liked it. And uh, I'm looking forward to talking about it more in the future if we ever get a chance to do it down the line. Right on. I read your uh, review, by the way, and you uh, made me want to watch it. So. Oh, damn. Thank you, man. That's a compliment. Well, you know. Just, just for um, our audience and me personally sake, um, can you just give a little bit of insight into exactly what it was yeah, yeah yeah i can i can give you that so basically mm-hmm. it's about this um this former soldier named tomas who is basically living as a, a essentially homeless person he's a homeless day laborer living on the outskirts of of london and he's pretty much haunted by this uh this traumatic event that happened uh, during his time when he was uh, stationed as a, a sentry um, during a unnamed war in an unnamed home country that he comes from, right? He's not from London. Uh, and so basically the, the squatter's den that he was, he was living in for a time, it, it, it burns down. It just burns down for some reason. And he's taken in by a nun who offers him free room and board uh, in exchange for working as a repair man and companion to this uh, this young woman uh, who's played by Anna Staline from Blade Runner 2049 uh, the the woman who is basically encased in the uh, 
in the in the glass dome who turns out to be uh, Deckard and Rachel's uh, daughter. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, actually. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. she, that's 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 the. Uh, she's that's like the, the memory creator or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, she's the memory creator. So she's basically taking care of her um, ailing mother, who is pretty much on her deathbed. Um, but things quickly um, are revealed to be not what they seem. Neither either in the case of um, the woman's mother, the woman herself, um, the the nun. Uh, Tomas's own past and like the circumstances that actually led him to here. And that's it. Hell yeah. I gotta say, Toussaint, I, um, obviously I mentioned that I read the review, but it's, it's such a strange phenomenon for me now that like your repertoire has obviously been growing all this time, but now you're starting to invade the literal corners of the internet that I check uh, almost daily, so it's a weird thing to bring up an AV Club article on film and then look at the author and be like, oh, this fucking guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Alex Dow, like, he, he reached out to me, uh, and he was like, man, we really like your, your stuff that you've done for TV Club and, like, the stuff I've done for games, like, way back in the day. And it's like, we'd like you to, to contribute to, to film sometime. And I'm, I was super intimidated just because like when i think of ab club i think of television and film those are the those are the the the, the infallible pillars definitely of the AB backbone <laughs> yeah they are they are the backbone so to be able to contribute to either of those sections like i i feel like privileged to even be able to write for tv on occasion and to be asked to write about film for them is just like holy shit like i i couldn't never have dreamed like a decade ago that I would be in a place to, to be approached to do something like that. It, it's, it's, it, it's, it, I'm over the moon about it. I'm, I'm still over the moon about it. And I just, I, I just filed copy for the review. So, yeah. Hey man, that, that, that's, that's, I mean, um, that's great, man. I mean, the fact that, that, you know, these people who, who I, uh, is someone who's not even huge into following the AV Club, even though I read reviews from them regularly, yeah, um, you know the people that I know from there who are now your peers um, in a way. That's um, wild to me. Oh, I mean, you know what? And, and that's earned by you. So oh, thank you. Um, that was awesome, Matt. Yeah, yeah. So uh, on to Cabin Fever, which I teased, I guess, earlier <laughs> after I mm-hmm. yeah, forgot the own segment that I wanted to do. Um, Let's start off with uh, with Anna and uh, letting us know both why she really wanted this episode and uh, her initial thoughts on Cabin Fever. All right. Um, okay. Um, well, first of all, no worries on how you guys do your schedule. Um, I, I guess I am just pretty persistent in uh, recommendations when Alex asks me. So no worries, honestly. Um, okay. So um, Cabin Fever. First of all, I noticed when I was uh, looking at this film's Wikipedia page once more, it is described as a horror comedy film, which I don't like. Um I think it's first and foremost a horror film with 
mostly ill-timed uh, comedy elements in there. Um, but I, I here here are my reasons why I am so attached to this. I think because, one, this film came out in 2002, I think this era of film is... It's kind of in between where digital is, like digital isn't quite there yet and so when things uh when movies are actually presented on film they have that certain look to them that i'm personally just very drawn to it's like the color grading is super duper simple um it it's really easy on the eye it's kind of um it's really easy to just kind of um get in get invited to i guess like the the aesthetic of this film, for the most part, if you just grabbed a couple stills from, like, the more quote-unquote normal scenes, this film is like, yeah, just grab your popcorn, it's alright. Um, so, I really like this film because I think it is the epitome, to me, of a, a horror film that is simple, yet effective. Us, as the audience, we know exactly what's coming before most of the characters do and I think it's done in not too heavy handed of a way and that is something I really appreciate as a viewer um also I'm part of my bias for this film is like Nick had mentioned before I did grow up watching Boy Meets World so when I realized that Ryder Strong was in this movie um, I was so happy, and I'm not surprised that he's effectively the lead, because he was clearly the most um, recognizable star at the time, and even after all this time, he still is. So, um, uh, Depends which corner of the internet you ask. <laughs> I guess that's true. I did... Um, <laughs> Considering okay, what's-her-name became a porn star. Okay, that's good to know. Um, okay. Also... The no. Huh? The one who played the... Uh, Marcy? No, the... I forgot what her name is, but she had the red hair, and she was the roommate for Will Friedle and Joey Lawrence. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, Maitland Ward? Yeah, anyway. Yes. So, I mean I mean, in the most recognizable star from Cabin Fever. No. Yes, I... I oh, I thought you meant a Boy Meets World, sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't just randomly trying to bring up porn stars. Although I do that sometimes. Um, yeah, ever, people on Boy Meets World, they're famous in their own right. But I mean, like in Cabin <laughs> Fever, I think Ryder Strong is like is like the most recognizable, at least to me. I know the actress that plays Karen, Jordan Ladd, she was in one of the Scream films, and I know that franchise was very successful. Um, but... Uh, Going back to my point, I um, I really, really like how this film we we can see like the the type of normality it has to offer, and then also just basic like the uh, excuse me, it it has a sense of normality and also a sense of completely left turn after left turn just sending you in a place where at the end you the audience learns that this was literally the worst cabin they could have possibly gone to and no one was going to make it out of there okay um so i really really like this film i think it's 
endlessly rewatchable. I think the parts that at least attempted to be funny were, you know, they were certainly there. Um, but even like the simple things where there's, um, at one point, I think it's within the 20 minute mark or something like that. We get like the flash forward of like those really, really short scenes where one of them is, uh, a flash forward of Karen in the mattress, uh, in the shed. And then it's just like the outside of the house and it all happens really, really quickly. But then there's like ominous music too. Um, and I think that's not really something that a lot of filmmakers choose to do because it can be done really poorly. But in that instance, I think it was done really well. Um, also, upon my second rewatch, I forgot that um, my rewatch of this, I forgot that when um, the story is being told at the campfire of the murders at the bowling alley, there's actually like a recreation of those murders being done. We get to see how it's all played out. Um, fun fact, there is a cameo by a guy that you think is Eli Roth, but that guy is actually Adam Roth. So I think Eli Roth has a brother that just looks exactly like him. Um, not, but, not, now, not the, not the guy at the campfire. Not the guy that at the Eli campfire, Roth. the guy in the flashback that was playing like the, the bald headed guy in the bowling alley. Cause, Cause he looks just like Eli. Exactly. But- but Eli Roth is the guy who's playing the guy with the huge bag of weed at the campfire. Yes, right? that yes. is actually Eli Roth. I didn't mean to co- to sound confusing. Um, oh no, no, you're you're, you're good. Okay. I just thought, in all honesty, I thought he was playing both characters. So. That's what I did too. But then I paid attention to the credits, and I was like, oh my goodness. Um, but yeah, so I mean, those are my opening thoughts, and I'm <laughs> really looking forward to hear what everybody else thinks, just because I know not everybody feels the same way as me. <laughs> well, speaking of that, I think I'll go next if that's okay. Um, I didn't love this movie. <laughs> uh, I actually didn't really care for this very much, and... Even though I feel like this does have a couple moments that are enjoyable and it does have a few redeeming qualities, I didn't think there was much here. Um, I, I didn't think that this this had really good horror comedy. I didn't think that this had really good just like slasher horror moments. Uh, I thought a lot of the horror elements in here were actually pretty, pretty tame. Uh, and... Uh, a lot of the comedy, especially in the first 30 minutes, and, and this is something that I'll say that I'll, I'll disagree with you a little bit, Anna, because I feel like the first 45 minutes of this movie, it is trying hard to be a comedy film. Um, and it, even more than something like Tucker vs. Dale, Tucker and Dale vs. Evil or something like that. Like, it, it just felt like this was going hard for Eli Roth's brand of comedy. Uh, and it, it was missing the mark at almost every turn. But at the same time, um, yeah, um, this is very much a late 90s, early 2000s comedy for sure, at least in the opening 30 to 40 minutes. Um, and there's a lot of very bizarre things happening here, whether it's lines or um, script writing or actions of the characters. Obviously, the shop owner, 
uh, having the extraordinarily racist remark early on uh, when when they ask what his rifle's for, and he says it's for the N-words. Um, and I will say that was terrible enough on its own, but then we get a super bizarre callback to that at the very end of this film when a group of um, Americans <laughs> show up to the store to retrieve their gun. Uh, and one of them refers to the white person as their N-word. And I, I don't know. It was just really odd. You know I, what I, I call know. that? Mm. You know what I call that? I call that Chekhov's slur. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yep. So, and then also, too, um, some more fabulous script writing came uh, when Bert goes out uh, to start hunting and uh, one of the female characters asked, why do you want to kill squirrels? And he responds, because they're gay. And then he says, don't be fucking retarded. Um, to be fair, that, there's know, an entire legion of people, people I was surrounded with, that talked exactly like that in the early 2000s. And I'm not saying, that, and that's what I'm I saying, mean, this is all, for sure a product of its time. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm still watching this in 2020 for the first time at least and i was like holy shit um and then the most uh surprising moment for me uh maybe the shop owner was more surprising uh but it's when the first sex scene happens and then they stop in the middle of it so the girl can start anally milking the guy and i don't know i i just thought that that was kind of out of place for this movie a lonely deer weeped at dawn (laughs) (laughs) um it it felt like there was a lot of things here just for shock value's sake instead of providing any sort of interesting s- plot or context or comedy to the story. Um, and then beyond the comedic parts of the first part of this film, when we get into the actual meat of the story and of the film when it does become the virus is taking over. Um, I just feel like this just doesn't lean in hard enough. It, it, it tries to be, I don't know if it's because of its budget or because it was trying to have the characters remain in their mode that they've established. But, um, you know, this the, the characters don't come become like something they do in like the evil dead or something like that. Like it just starts to slowly eat away at them and they don't become zombies or they don't become, um, flesh eating beings of some sort. Like they just start having their flesh go away. Uh, and, and I just didn't find very much interesting in that. I will say one thing that I loved about this <laughs> was the guy like over the top cheering himself on at the end like I did it I did it myself I made it and this getting just totally shot up by the police oh man Ventilate. that was pretty good see yeah, that... no, he, he, he was killed oh, see man. what uh, a, what a karmic um what karmic comeuppance for Jeff, who totally just abandoned his friends, who one of whom yeah. was on her last leg, and then just completely ah, abandoning, literally. literally, and then abandoning his girlfriend without any regard to her at all, and then he hides away 
through an entire night surviving on just beer. He thinks he's made it, and then the townspeople are insane and don't want to figure out anything what's going on and are just ordered to kill all of these people and burn the bodies. Like, how messed up is that? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I, I, there just wasn't much here for me to really latch on to the story uh, or as a comedy or as anything, really. So I didn't really like this at all. So... Um, I'll let someone else uh, go next, but um, those are most of my feelings uh, in total of Kevin Fever. So, Tucson? Yeah, I'll go. Um, I think that, thank you, thank you, Alex. I think that you covered a lot of, like, ground that I, um, that I've been sort of turning around in my head since I watched this film. Um, I'll be very honest, when the decision came to do Cabin Fever, I had never really thought of this film before or ever saw it like I, I may have seen the cover of it before like walking through blockbuster or some shit but i never thought to actually pick it up and watch it um it, it's funny because when i was asking for clarification as to what film we were reviewing i almost confused this with the 2016 remake and we thought <laughs> we we had a joke about whether what if i watched the, the the right one. If if I had watched the remake and I had come to this 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 uh this, this call right now where we're like recording this episode, and, and I was just like, "Fuck you guys!" I'm going to talk about my film. Um, but no, that's not the case. I actually watched the correct film that we are talking uh, about today. So good for me. Good for us. Um, I think that um, I'm going to have to side with Alex in this regard, in that I disagree about this being a a straight horror film just because i think that at the first 30 minutes the first the first act of this film i don't believe that this is actually playing it straight at all there's way too much weird sort of of of, of i can't even find the word for it it's it's, it's like a non sequitur that's what i mean non sequitur bullshit that is thrown in in the first like third of this film it's really hard to like take it at its face and to really take it seriously as a a capital H horror film and not a horror um, uh, slash uh, comedy film. Uh, I I will have to echo sort of the sentiment that I thought that this was uh, um, exceedingly crass, uh, um, even by the standards of early aught. Um, genre cinema because we've had our encounters before where we've sat down and we've we've watched films uh that are from that era and sort of like cringed and like that didn't really age well did it um i think we we may have had an experience with that where i think uh we were recording at the studio once and uh we were watching a, a a film after a recording that was one of alex's favorite films from high school i can't remember what it was i think there was like some type of like huge pull party at the end i don't know if like alex might remember that um or or what it was called huge pool party i think he's uh, talking this... about can't hardly wait yeah can't hardly wait that's what i mean Ooh. yeah i, I yeah. will say and nostalgia does play into feelings on films for sure sure sure, sure. um yeah, that's aged just horribly. Yeah, so. that, 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 that's how I feel uh, uh, comparatively uh, with 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 Cabin Fever. I think this is a exceedingly crass, crude, and ultimately uh, masochistic um, uh, horror comedy. Uh, particularly because I don't believe that 
the the director. I, it, it comes through in the writing that I don't, don't believe that the director has any sort of empathy for his characters because it's very hard for me to strain to even think of any redeeming qualities about these these people. It, it, it feels akin to uh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil, and I'm glad that Alex brought that up because that was also another comparison I had while I was watching it. Only that you know, I feel like Tucker and Dale is 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 smart and funny for me at least. It's like it's it's funny to me, and I think that it's actually a really intelligent film that just like it's the way that it plays with its genre and, and its conventions is just it's on another level compared to uh, uh, Cabin Fever, which I feel is just pretty lowbrow in its in its exploration of these sort of tropes. Um, I'm not a fan of uh, the the main character because even though like what, what's his name the uh, the guy from uh, Boy, Me- Boy Meets World what's what's the character's name Paul yeah Paul I'm not a fan of Paul uh, even though you know he's he's sort of made out to be sort of this puppy dog figure um, I uh, the the scene where he discovers that his uh, that his uh, childhood friend and and sort of unrequited love interest uh, is infected. Um, that really skied me the fuck out. Like that, that, uh, that, that had shades of the opening of, of end of Evangelion only without any sort of thematical, thematical subtext or significance whatsoever. He's just a fucking creep. Um, uh, what, what's the name of the, the, the boyfriend who ran away? Yeah, he ran away. He's a fucking dick. Yeah. I don't like, yeah, I don't like him at all. Uh, and Bert, honestly, every time I hear his name i think of bert from uh sesame street and, and uh bert is a lot more lovable than uh than this bert because he literally left a man to die in the forest uh he shot him and then refused him any sort of medical aid and it's just he he could have he could have driven he, like before the car got fucked up he could have actually driven to actually get a doctor to do that shit and they didn't do that maybe the only two redeeming characters are the are the two female characters um it's just uh yeah what let's let, let me let me talk about what i did like about this film there there is something that i did like about this film um and it may be very faint praise but i think that when anna was talking about um how they have these sort of like weird premonitions and like uh uh, very smash cut uh, montages that sort of delineate the passage of one act to the next. Like I think of the first one at the exact like 33 minute mark, there's those um, those really weird flashes of images that are going to be, be happening in, uh, in, in like later on in the film. And then there's the shot of the blood spraying onto the windows and it's sort of like played in reverse. And then it just like smash cuts to the exact same shot that opened um, the film proper with the, uh, the, the, the sort of downcast sun hovering over the lake and sort of the reflection sort of like uh, pulling underneath that. It's like, I thought, like, I'm, I'm, I'm a sucker for, for um, good visual effects, good cinematography, and just really evocative imagery. Um, that's just sort of my, my meat and potatoes. So I, I enjoyed that, but it was just a little bit too lean in that uh that area to sort of really draw out any more good faith in this sort of regard i thought the cameo from uh eli roth as grim was uh was was pretty pretty weird um 
And uh, yeah, it's 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 hard for me to really get on. Like I, I I think that this film is intended to be a horror comedy. I feel like co- comedy is definitely what it's going for, but it's really hard for me to sort of get on this film's uh, comedic like wavelength just because it's so disparate from what I find to be fun or 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 entertaining. It just uh, I, I haven't watched a lot of Eli Roth films, but this sort of strikes me as the as a kind of vibe of I would not want to hang out with this guy. Like it's it seems like a he seems like he he'd be, he'd be, he might be okay to like like talk to or pass in the hall, but I'm just like oh, I don't know about that. I don't I don't know about about coming over your house to smoke pot and watch movies. I don't know about that. I'll say this about Eli Roth. And I have, I too have not seen a lot of his films, but I've watched a lot of clips and trailers from his films, and I've just never been interested in his in his work in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I actually wanted to see his his Death Wish remake with Bruce Willis that got just the worst reviews ever. Um, but at the same time, um, I oddly think that he actually is a pretty good performer when he's put in the right role in terms of acting. And oh, I feel like, like uh, Inglorious Bastards, yeah. Dude, he's great in Inglorious Bastards, in my he opinion. Yeah. And I feel like if he's casted in the right role, he could really deliver a solid performance. Um, but directing-wise, I'm, I'm not so sure. and I, I'm, not, I'm not in a hurry to seek out his works. Yeah. Plus, um, he directed the... Uh... The Nazi film in Glorious Bastards. Oh, uh, he did. Nation's Pride, yeah. Oh wow, that is very <laughs> interesting. interesting. Oh. And he also directed um, what was it? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. In the yeah. Grindhouse. <laughs> that's the only other thing I know from him, from Grindhouse. Uh, um, and that in uh, the the green, the Green Thunder movie where it's like the cannibals are like eating like Green Inferno. Green Inferno. That's what I meant. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but yeah, those are sort of my opening thoughts and then sort of circling back to sort of that, that checkoff slur, um, at the end, it's just sort of, yeah, it's, it's just a really out of left field, non sequitur sort of, this, this whole film feels like dialogue and plot beats that are cobbled together from in jokes between a, a very niche circle of, of horror fanatics and the screenwriter director and uh, the actors themselves. But I don't know if it ever really coheres into something that um, is more than the sum of this, this escalating effort to sort of outcrass one another. Uh, so those are sort of my opening thoughts. Uh, Nicholas. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny that you what you just said about this kind of being a series of in jokes between horror fanatics because I actually think that's more apt than you might even realize, um, in the sense that as someone who has seen a lot of horror movies now, and in particular a lot of the horror movies that Eli Roth so clearly loves from the seventies and eighties, he's a, I think he's a grindhouse person at heart. Um, this is a weird hodgepodge of 
things that he grew up on from Hicks, uh, Hicksploitation to the Evil Dead. Um, the, but yeah, what you are saying is correct too, is that it is just throwing every single noodle in the bowl of spaghetti at the wall and hoping that it'll all stay up there. And, it, and I would say in one sense it does, and on the other it definitely doesn't. Um, First off, I want to say that I think this movie is a condemnation of the public education system because I think Paul, uh, in that bedroom scene, uh, displays a very worrying level of comprehension of female anatomy uh, (laughs) when his fingers are down there for a good solid 90 seconds or so, and it really doesn't ever faze him that that's not what a normal anatomy feels like uh but anyway um i will say that (laughs) i think that uh i think this movie's hit and miss um actually it's my second time watching it and i'm i'm thinking that this movie is maybe going to have its day uh with me in the future i'm not quite sold on it yet but i'm definitely right down the middle um i thought it was very interesting to watch uh, during uh, COVID, because the the ultimate premise, which is not entirely revealed in its scope until the final reel and really the final scene of an entire community just essentially blaming a younger generation for things that are not their fault uh, as they continue to ignore a genuine health crisis and do everything in their power to not only just cover it up, but to essentially just uh, live life in a extremely destitute way that they don't even have to do. Uh, it was very interesting <laughs> to uh, to watch that kind of uh, cognitive dissonance here uh, during these times. Um, because at the end of the day, Cabin Fever, what's, what I think is the weird thing about it that a lot of people re, uh, react to is that ultimately the title... And the M.O. of the virus is the film's true thesis. And I'm not saying it's a strong one or that he supports it very well, but that human beings are the real monsters. And technically speaking, the virus is just a virus. You know, nobody's transformed into anything other than a human being looking for help. So uh, the idea there, as he kind of maneuvers and switches lanes because he also wants to make the evil dead and um you know and whatnot is is i even got a weird i i can assume that the the inspiration for that gurney scene in the hospital was the shining when he looks in and he sees a person in an easter bunny outfit i just i totally got that too that yeah because it's so random and pointless that I assume and i hope that he got it from there and not just thought that an easter bunny would be you know, the right thing to put there, but anyway. Um, But yeah, as he tries to maneuver through all of these different genres and all of these, you know, um, the basically the entire lineage of grindhouse horror before him, it, it just becomes clear that at this point, it feels like he's a film student who finally got to make his first real film, not just a student film. And he wasn't going to let that opportunity go to waste in case he never got financing again. And because of that, we're stuck with an extremely tonally mismatched film. And I think 
Technically, I think he's actually a very spirited and interesting filmmaker. Um, as a writer, not so much at all. But I do think his eye is something to behold, and he's weirdly restrained in some of the capturing and some of those vistas and the way that the action um, doesn't... I think Alex kind of alluded to it, but I think it's purposeful that we don't ever go full in on like big jump scares or whatever because in a lot of ways these characters are creating a chaotic situation that doesn't exist and so i, I found that part to be actually pretty subversive in a way so i kind of understand why this movie still to this day has a cult following i don't know that it was entirely successful but the second half in particular really does win me over and make me want to continue to revisit it to see what I can parse through. Um, I'm not going to say it's particularly meaningful or even um, that good of a homage to what's come before it, but I do think, technically speaking, Eli Roth is a genuine person when it comes to his love for horror. You know, um, One thing that's always annoyed the shit out of me um is that the filmmaker he's closest to is tarantino uh like that is he is definitely a you know knockoff version and um the thing about tarantino is that he's a much better filmmaker obviously but tarantino technically whenever he's asked about film i know he has seen literally everything but every time he's asked a question he i think intentionally tries to pick the most obscure thing even if it fits or doesn't fit the answer and or you know the theme he's trying to express whereas oh, I th- he's one of those guys yeah, yeah that's my own personal conspiracy theory which is not to say that his love for cinema is in any way diminished but I think when it comes to his public persona of the genealogy of his film references and whatnot um, I always feel like his his public interviews do not always align with the movies he actually cites, which is there's some crossover, but it's like when you're face-to-face with him, he's trying to play Jeopardy with you to see if you've ever heard of it. Whereas in his movies, like Django, the franchise is not a super obscure grindhouse, you know, whatever. But if you were to ask him, like, what's your favorite Italian Western? He'll name that one from 1963 before they were even a thing and that no one he ever heard of it, blah, blah, blah. So the one thing I do like, yeah, the one thing I do like about Eli Roth, though, is that his inspirations are slightly more in his own wheelhouse. So I don't think he's ever trying to, uh, you know, hit outside of his weight class. And I do think this is mostly in this case, the pains of a first film. Uh, But I do like the fact that whenever he talks about movies, and I've seen interviews with him, he is not above calling a classic a classic, and then kind of reaching a little bit into the bucket and pulling out what, like, I mean, 10 years ago I had never seen, but nowadays I'm like, oh yeah, that's a classic in Spanish giallo and whatnot, and and so on and so forth. And I think his inspiration is uh, pretty much rings all throughout his entire career. I mean, Knock Knock, which is the only film I've seen by him besides this, uh, is technically a remake of two other movies, one called Death Games and another one called Little Miss Innocence with the same premise. And I think that's a stronger movie than this because in that sense he was remaking, basically, instead of trying to uh, concoct his own uh, thing. But I don't know. 
throughout here, I gotta say that I thought the comedy at times was ridiculous and not good, and at other times I thought was actually weirdly subversive. I think while I'm in no position to give an authoritative take on the extremely left-field joke uh, that concerns the N-word, I will say that the 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 culmination of that thread did make me laugh more than I thought it would based on my first impression of them in the hardware store when they first asked about the gun. So I do think that it's easy to paint him off as a frat boy um, because he is very into shock horror and whatnot. But I do think that there's this weird kernel of truth in the idea that he is trying to expose that there's a weird insular community inside the horror genre and you know everybody loves everybody um and i think that joke is somewhat a byproduct of that kind of kumbaya uh sensation that i think a lot of horror fans feel but overall i think it's a very mixed bag i think there's a lot to unpack not necessarily story-wise but the movie in relationship to eli roth but um yeah i just think it's uh it is what it is and it's certainly uneven but Throughout, I was entertained. So, those are my opening thoughts. Yeah, I feel like we hit on a lot, actually, in everybody's opening thoughts. And, and Anna, I'll let you springboard us into the first thing that you want to really talk about. But I will say this, something I didn't want to forget about. I had a really hard time watching this movie because of its title of Cabin Fever. Because I have to say, I kept thinking throughout the entirety of my viewing of this, of the one number in Muppet Treasure Island when they start talking about how they all have cabin fever. And, oh, man, I just kept having that song in my head the whole time. So. That sounds like a Sorry. YP. Yeah, that was really random. So, anyways, it's all that. That is that super that. funny. Is it? It, it is, actually. Oh. I disagree. Okay. <laughs> uh, Anna, please send us off into um, what you want to talk about first. With okay, to get uh, to get a little bit more in depth, um, I want to say that I kind of well, one of the things that really makes me appreciate um, just the way everything is set up about this film is that we see where it starts from in the very beginning, and then we get this full loop of where everything comes together at the end. So it starts with um, the hobo and the dead dog um, and then it ends with the bottle of spring water getting hauled away in the truck. Um, I know this isn't important, okay. But in my mind I was like, why first of all, I'm sad that I'm seeing this dead dog, which is obviously a stuffed animal of a German shepherd with makeup added to it. But why is that dog sick? And then why does that, why does it get to the hobo? Like it, it basically like it, it kind of took me out of it for a second, but then I'm like, Oh, okay. Um, and then one thing that is still a big question mark to me um, as a viewer, I'm hoping to get insight from you all to see how you feel about this. Um, one of my favorite, uh, parts of this film when it comes to, like, everybody's individual death scenes, 
My one of my favorite parts is when Marcy is um, in the bathtub and she's shaving her legs, which we all do when there's a crisis going on. Yeah, that was like her post. That was like her post sex, like last bath I'm ever taking kind of situation she was having. So is that a um, thing that people have? In this in this film's universe, apparently. (laughs) Alex, honey, you mean you've never been? (laughs) I was gonna say the way you just described it, Anna, felt like someone's last meal before their execution. I don't know. (laughs) Last Uh, bath and shaving. Oh no, there goes my skin. (laughs) (laughs) So she is uh, in the bathtub and clearly very upset because. She notices that she has the infection and there's pretty much nowhere to go from there. Um, so that scene kind of like it cuts back and forth and then we see her um, eventually run out of the cabin. And, and it's like visually I thought it was kind of cool because her robe is red and then her legs are covered in blood from her infection. But how realistic is it that she just gets so easily eaten alive by that dog? I don't know. It just seems so odd to me, I guess. I don't know. So, it's a dog was there dog something world. weird about the dog? Did the dog have some form of the disease, too? I, I mean, the really dog weird. carried it, but I don't think it necessarily means that he okay. was the origin. No, but I got a really weird, like, pet cemetery church the cat vibe from that dog. No, I don't think Dr. Mambo... Oh, like got that i guess <laughs> i'm wondering when when the hobo although in the movie they repeatedly call him a hermit and i'm like nobody talks like that um but <laughs> when the hobo does encounter the dog technically speaking he's already got the infection so I believe the idea that there's something out there and it's bigger than you know what we even see in the movie Yeah, I'm wondering, like, that's actually a good point, Alex. I, to my knowledge, as I was getting at, I didn't think the dog had the disease, but we saw that Dr. Mambo was very happily snacking on Grimm. So I think the dog was like, this is a meal for me. And that's just kind of like the the canine instinct. Like, when you're dead after a while, or at least going to be dead, if the dog loves you, it's still going to try to eat you. So, no, like, but he's, like, hanging out around that cabin, being like, yo, when y'all gonna let me eat, dude? Like, <laughs> so the other thing what is... is what is it, Anna? Like, where it's, like, love is an animal, like, eating your face or something like that? Oh, my Twitter bio? Yeah, your Twitter bio. <laughs> From that This American <laughs> Life episode I, I heard it on? <laughs> yeah. Love is an animal eating your brain? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Miss, Miss, Dr. Mambo just loves her so much. So, yeah, Dr. Mambo really is just the epitome of what I heard on This American Life. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing I'll say is I think that the movie is also subtly trying to push the fact that if it did originate with anybody, it originated with the kid because he likes to bite people. And I believe that they are not really you know, parenting him very well. So he has access to outside. And so I think the idea there that he probably bit 
a hobo and the hobo wanders down and then um, at some point a dog is involved, you know, whatever. But I, I do think there's some at least some credence to the idea that um, the kid is involved with the origin in some way. That's that's a good point because I feel like the kid wouldn't be there for no reason unless it the kid really was just there for no reason and he was there for that weird karate scene. Yep. I... I, I think that one of my favorite scenes from this film, and I do have a favorite scene from this film, is this one where uh, Bert uh, comes back to the the gas station. He's bit on the hand by the kid, and the shop owner very seriously explains, "We have a problem. If you're sick, that's your problem. But if he gets sick, then that's my problem. And when I get sick, then that's Martha's problem." or whatever her, her wife's name is. So we got to get rid of the problem. And I was like, holy fucking shit. This is the same line of thinking about what's going on right now. Yeah. These fucking people. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, I mean, that's definitely yeah. what I was reacting to uh, when I was... I, I'm completely in uh, agreement. And I think the idea of that and especially with the lackadaisical nature that he you know leaves his kid out on the bench to sit there and to continually bite people is basically the same leap of logic of like i don't have to wear a mask because whatever happens is your fault not my fault or something you know it's like it doesn't make any sense but it technically uh it doesn't have to because these people are deranged because they're human beings and all human that's beings. His, that, that's his rules for his property. Yeah. Hmm. It's a cool. private establishment. Uh, I really quickly, before I forget, I need to read something I just read now, but I need to read it out loud verbatim. Uh, there <laughs> is a... Uh, on the Wikipedia page, I don't know if anyone else has read this, but if not, buckle in, folks. Um... Under the subheading casting, which is usually one of the most boring parts of any film's Wikipedia page, because like you already know who was you know casted. Maybe they'll tell you uh, who might have been or whatever. No, Cabin Fever does not settle for a boilerplate Wikipedia casting section. Here we go. This is what it says under casting. The auditions for the character of Marcy had been scheduled to take place on September 11, 2001. The scene the producers had chosen for the auditioning actresses was the build-up to Marcy's sex scene with Paul. In the scene, Marcy is convinced that all the students are doomed, and despite Paul's reassurances, she describes their situation as like being on a plane when you know it's going to crash. Everybody around you is screaming, we're going down, we're going down, and all you want to do is grab the next uh, person next to you and fuck them because you know you're going to be dead soon anyway. <laughs> Eli Roth and the producers tried to cancel the Marcy auditions, but the general chaos caused by the attack made it impossible for them to reach many of the actresses who were scheduled to try out for the role that day. Uh, I was also shocked when I read that fun fact, and I was thinking of that fun fact when I watched their scene again. <laughs> I just, the way it says Eli Roth and the producers tried to cancel the Marcy audition, like, you know what, you can still put a sign up on the door. <laughs> like, like, oh, well, I guess you're here. Uh, sit down, and we'll get a folding table out. Like, it's just what? <laughs> Cabin fever must go on. <laughs> anyway, that was, uh, that's still the, that's a tie, I would say, with 
my favorite fun fact trivia piece I've ever read on a film, which is uh, a tie with the extremely random uh, IMDb piece of trivia that they put in the entry for Meatballs 4 about uh, one of the actors from uh, who's also in Twin Peaks. And I think I've shared that before, so I won't share it now, but it's great. It's really Go read it. I love when you've told us about that nick yeah about how his wife died and like she was struck by lightning and anyway it's uh i just love a that's a trivia for meatballs for anyway <laughs> um but yeah what were we really talking about um i just posed a couple questions about the logical fallacies of the virus um also, I really, like, I understand that the cop was supposed to be, like, purposefully um, incompetent, and he was, you know, also supposed to be the comic relief, but um, I thought he was honestly the most annoying character. I didn't really care for him. Yeah, I think that that, uh, much like the Coen brothers, that was a... Um... Eli Roth decision that was showing his thoughts on law enforcement. Yeah. No, I, I definitely think that uh, certainly this movie has uh, nothing good to say about... And I think that's part of uh, what, what Tucson alluded to earlier about how um, Eli Roth doesn't really have empathy for any of his characters. And I think that's absolutely true. He's an extremely... Uh, harsh storyteller and I think what happens sometimes in his movies is that sometimes that works for his benefit because then we have these uh, just kind of awful and yet almost scathing depictions of uh, you know local structures that we have the utmost faith in Uh, not really Uh, or obviously sometimes it kind of doesn't quite work because then we are surrounded by a bunch of, you know, college assholes that we just don't really want to be with. So it's like we don't care when they start to die. And obviously there's something to that because that does make it a little more, you know, engaging. But, you know, even that choice in and of itself is drawing on a a long line of uh, pretty much what's now a staple of having your characters be assholes so that way they can exist in such a macabre world without it getting too depressing. Yeah, that... That cop, though, first of all, that's randomly one of uh, Randy Quaid's characters' kids in oh. Independence Day. Oh, yeah. I think in real life, I was like, "Huh." Oh. <laughs> that would also make sense. <laughs> uh, no, but that was just such a—I don't know—all of his scenes, like just the way he spoke to the other characters, like, "Oh, you should just go chill and drink a 40. Like, who says that? So I don't know. I, a shitty cop. <laughs> well, no, uh, there, there was just there was a lot to unpack with the way that he actually said that because, first of all, he's obviously talking to her, talking down to her, uh, in a time when obviously she's in somewhat of a crisis, and then just the like sort of way that he not says go have a drink, go chill out, go drink a forty. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> very interesting. I will Very specific. S- yeah, I will say I do think that, for better or for worse, that when it comes to the secondary characters in this movie, they are painted in an extremely uh, pronounced 
distinction as to like who they are and uh, the aura they give off on screen. And that kind of does have its ties, at least I think, in, uh, as I was talking earlier about like the kind of the history of horror back in the 70s and 80s during these uh, just uh, influx of B-movies, there would be a lot of times when you know, scripts were so half-written that a lot of times, sometimes the actors were kind of making it up as they went. Not necessarily, like, full-on improv, but like, oh, well, you know, this is my only shot to be in a movie, so maybe this could be my whatever, and because this isn't a very fully fleshed-out character. And so we, there's a whole archive out there of all these movies where some random person will show up and for some weird reason, give a performance that I wouldn't say is antithetical of what's happening, but is is so weirdly uh, tapped into that it's just like, whoa there, calm down there, Elmer Fudd. Like, it's just, you are not creating a legacy with this, uh, you know, character and this movie is not going to stand the test of time necessarily. So I, I almost feel like he does, uh, Roth as a writer, purposefully go out of his way to write these characters in such a way that tries to feel distinctly populated in his universe so that they have these weird quirks and personalities but obviously at, a, at another uh, you know view of that would be that that's why this movie does feel weirdly overstuffed and tonally mismatched yeah, yeah I don't know I uh... That, that, that police officer character and <laughs> he just had, had some part like just just the fact that he went to go rake up a underage girl's drinking party and then lied about if he had found them um, or said he had found them and it's all good and he's drinking with that I don't know it's a lot of weird awkward things happening for that very, character uh, on screen for about four minutes super troopers reject <laughs> and this movie has Joey Kern, so yeah. uh, Joey Kern, he plays the asshole one, you know, the, yeah. one who, the one who's dating Marcy. He in Super oh. Troopers is in the opening scene with the weed, um, like um, you know where they, him and his buddy have the mushrooms, and he's like, "Pull over, man! He can't pull over! He can't pull over any further, man!" You know that guy. Anyway. Uh, fun fact, the actor that plays Bert, James DeBello, is in Detroit Rock City. Is that good? Uh, I really like Detroit Rock City when I watched it. It reminded me of a cartoon, so that's what I thought of most of the time. Okay. I thought Edward Furlong is in that, isn't he? Yes, he is, yeah. Yeah. Um, also, so the uh, deputy, the guy who plays him, is in Detroit Rock City. <laughs> oh. Oh, wow. Okay. Huh, interesting. So I think you guys bring up a good point when it comes to Eli Roth doesn't really write empathetic characters. Um, That specifically reminded me of the scene where um, after the group finds out that Karen is infected and uh, they all go ballistic and they in turn exile her to the shed. And of course she is super unhappy and the four of them reassure her that there's always going to be somebody outside with her and that she's going to be okay and of course that doesn't fucking happen because at one point later in the evening they're all like the four of them are 
sitting in the log cabin trying to figure out what to do and trying to figure out if Karen used the dishes because they don't want to eat from them. They're also um, giving weird, like, half-naked body exams to them. I thought it was weird that it was half-naked, to be honest. Like, <laughs> like That I'm they just... should have just been fully nude to make sure. Well, I mean, I'm just saying. Especially like, why... in a horror movie. Yeah, I'm like, not, it's not like it would be there. weirdly out of place. They, you know, they make <laughs> the James DeBell character or whatever make jokes about it. But um, the idea is like, yeah, I'll just lift up my shirt a little bit. Oh, see the belly button? Like, I don't know. <laughs> so, um... The what about that? The thing about that scene specifically is when they're reassuring her about how they're going to essentially like chaperone her throughout her being exiled. She takes one last look at them as a whole and says, I want to go home. And like throughout the previous 25 minutes. Karen was the one being super um, emphatic about wanting to leave immediately. It was after, I believe it was right after the the hermit died. They accidentally killed the hermit. Or it was after Grimm had come to their campfire. Um, And she just wanted to leave. And of course she has one of the worst deaths in the whole film. And so I think that is just, that's something that kind of makes you empathetic. So, um, and uh, something that um, stood out to me when I was reading trivia about this film, no one who gets the disease actually dies from it, which I think was Mm. also really interesting narratively, because think about it. So, um, Bert dies by getting shot, and speaking of, I actually really liked his scene because essentially he was sacrificing himself, um, so I really like yeah, how he just set really up. a weird choice, too. He, he, like, completes a weird, like, hero turn at the end of this and self-sacrifices. Uh, yeah. Was he that was- always, like, an asshole, though? Like, he was an asshole in the uh, douche bro sense, but... Like, the other two displayed much more sociopathic tendencies. I don't know. He had that really weird comment about the reason why he wanted to kill squirrels. And I, I don't well, know. I'm was not, really small once again, I'm there. not <laughs> trying to get into some semantics of where his politics or whatever, but <laughs> I'm saying Ryder Strong's character literally rapes the, his childhood crush, and the other guy yeah. does not care about anybody but himself you're 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 not wrong but he's the only one who uh, i don't know like has a big show at the end of his at the end of the line for him it's very weird i can't can't deny that i i I still stick to my claim that with with the exception of the two women like there's very little redeeming qualities um across the majority like the, the the main male like Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I'm not necessarily sticking up for him, but mostly just in conjunction with the other two. uh, The fact that, you know, if he knows he's going to die, that he would just say, oh, fuck it, here, I'll help, like, doesn't actually surprise me. Like, I I guess I just felt like that character was written to be the stifler of this film, uh, and he's not supposed to have any sort of depth. Um, and then he, he does. Yeah, I think yeah, the so, other... Oh, sorry, Anna, you go. No, go ahead. Nick. Well, I was going to say, finally, that also that's another way that I think uh, 
Roth continually tries to subvert tropes, but like if you keep subverting, then it just becomes a spiral, and that's not you know like it's less of a subversion as it is just a oh we're gonna turn left we're gonna turn and it's like well at a certain point if you take too many lefts you're going in the same direction as you started but so anyway that's what I was gonna say. Um. That's a very good point, Nick. Um, but yeah, so uh, Bert um, sacrifices himself, which I think was a very cool scene. Um, Paul, I th- okay, personally, okay, this could be just a blatant misconception. I think it's left to be ambiguous whether or not he dies because he ha- he is shown at the very end uh, being, um, having been thrown from the car. Like, we don't see him getting thrown from the car, but he's basically abandoned at the creek by, um, the police officer. It's not made clear to us whether or not he's dead, but his body is making contact with the water that is infecting it. So, I mean, for all intents and purposes, let's just say that Paul isn't dead, or if he is dead, he's just, he just is what it is. Okay. Um, Marcy gets mauled by the dog. Karen gets a mercy death from Paul by the shovel. And then, as we all know, Jeff dies with his victory lap by getting shot. So, Well, that's a, that's a good perspective. Yeah. No, I mean, it obviously paints the whole, you know, humans are the real monsters, you know, type vibe that I think was very intentional. For sure. I'm sensing Alex would like to go to final ratings. <laughs> Did I say that? Well, okay, no. Sorry, sorry. I would like to go to final ratings. <laughs> I will be <laughs> Spartacus. It just but kept getting person. silent every time, so I just... Was... <laughs> oh. Okay, I'm, I wasn't doing that on purpose. I just had nothing to add, so... <laughs> no, I know, I guess I think sometimes we all go silent because you're the host, so we think maybe there's going to be something, but... Oh, uh, boy. No, I'm not... I'm saying that's how it could be m- misconstrued, so I apologize. We're, we're still uh, going through the growing pains of this being a remote podcast. Uh, we're used to usually taking a... a Physical, like, like physical the 14th episode. We're still getting used to it. Yeah, we're still getting used to it. <laughs> anyway, um, who wants to start with final ratings? <laughs> Sounds like you do, man. Uh, I do, yes. Um, so, yeah, everything that I I said about this film, I stand by it. I think it's exceedingly crass, even by the standards of when it came out. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to sort of judge it harshly by the standards of, of 2020. Uh, it is it is what it is. Um, this this type of film would probably not be made right now. I can't, and, and even by saying that, I haven't actually seen the 2016 uh, Cabin Fever remake, so I don't know how true that is and whether or not it's any good. I'm sort of picking up on the, uh, the, the temperature that it is not a good film, so I'm just gonna skip it. Um, yeah, I just think this film is exceedingly crass. I think it's kind of crude. I think it's very rough around the edges. There's a, I, I, I would say that there is sort of a, a certain, uh, charm to it in its in its in its crassness, but it doesn't really, really do much for me. So I guess I'm gonna just give it a, uh, 
Uh, I'll give it a one and a half out of five. Right on. Uh, I'm going to go next really yeah. quick. Uh, right I'm that. Yeah, I'm right down the middle on this. Uh, it's a two and a half out of five for me because I'm pretty mixed on it. I think there are actually some decent... Um, new spins on a lot of old tropes and whatnot. Um, but I'm going to actually disagree with one statement Toussaint made at the top of the hour and say... Oh, I know, right? And say that this movie is a good <laughs> example of how actually I personally would would like to uh, basically smoke weed and watch horror movies with <laughs> Eli Roth because I think that would be more productive than watching one of his films. So uh, I, I think he's a genuine <laughs> horror fan. Like I don't, there are sometimes you watch where the director clearly hates the genre and he's trying to elevate it and that can be infuriating as well. And while this isn't perfect by any means, um, it is sometimes refreshing to see someone come in uh, the genre and be pretty unabashed about how much they love, um, yeah, crassness and uh, just this utter depravity that uh, does not always work, for sure, uh, but is certainly uh, entertaining for a reason. So it's uh, two and a half out of five for me. Right on, man. I'll go next. Eh. Uh, I uh, I wasn't a fan of this. <laughs> Uh, I gave this one out of five. I just couldn't get behind a lot of what was in this movie. And this didn't really bring me anywhere in terms of laughing or enjoying a weird slasher horror movie or a scary horror movie. Um, This just never really did anything for me when it comes to that other than a few fleeting moments so wasn't big on this and um that's pretty much it one out of five for me for kevin fever all righty well i am gonna present myself as a uh lone dr mambo in the woods um i (laughs) um i give this film Four out of five stars. Because. (laughs) Sing it, sister. Speak your truth, girl. (laughs) Because, um, I, I, uh, upon repeat viewings, I notice more and more things I don't like. However, I don't think a film has to be great for me to like it. And I, I really think this is one of those films that I thoroughly just do enjoy it. For what it is. I'll say this, Anna. Yeah. You are right. You are right. You're absolutely <laughs> I right. hate I love so many shit ass films and it's great. I uh, am so happy that I've um, never liked a bad film, so I can't like relate to any of you. <laughs> but I definitely like appreciate the perspective that you guys are sharing right now. I think that's really cool. Yes, my ass. Uh, Showgirls is really actually good. <laughs> When I I was like, when I was, uh, (laughs) when I was old enough to, to really like accentuate that, that thinking, I was like, wait a minute, that's why I love this film. And that's why I love this film. It's because I just genuinely really love it. And really, this is, this is one of these films for me. I just, I think this is 
so simple at its core and it gets it gets to be so effective i feel like truthfully it would be so much better to me if um the the comedy attempts just really weren't there um because i really don't like like that this is described as a horror comedy i think this is just horror with um badly placed writing at many points in the story um but i really just do do like this a lot and i think that like from the way everything folds out and um the way that we're introduced to the townspeople and how every attempt at getting help is essentially a dead end for one reason or another it just is it it stuck with me so much after the first time that i watched this that it 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 really made made me like the the true simplicity of the type of horror this is um and like you guys have echoed my thoughts about how i feel about eli roth i do think he's a slightly better performer than he is a, a director but i do appreciate um this type of vision he was really going for um and i think this is me personally it's one of the better done um genres of specifically body horror um so I like that a lot. So four out of five stars for me. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I love your confidence. That's good. Four <laughs> out of five stars for me. <laughs> I liked it more this time than I did the first time I watched it. So I'm, I'm, I'm heading your way, Anna. Oh my gosh. Can't wait for good. you guys to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> this actually did make me want to go watch because I never watched it in its original run and I'll probably regret it, but I do kind of now have an itch to watch the uh, Hostel films. Honestly, I still got to watch those. I've Those have been... Anybody? Hey, the second one's set in Las Vegas, Alex. So. Well, oh, now Alex has like to that. watch it. Now it has to. It's and his favorite place. Apparently, the main actor is Kip Pardue from Remember the Titans, so that's pretty great. What the fuck? Oh my god. I tell no lies. <sighs> what? Play us out, Johnny. Yeah, are we, uh, we, we're driving us home? This is what I was talking about. <laughs> that was awesome, too, sir. Uh, that was great. Thank you. <laughs> now play us out. <laughs> but Tucson's like, no, but fucking seriously, let's do this shit. <laughs> So, coming up on our next episode uh, should be the four of us again uh, talking about the NASCAR film uh, 1990's Days of Thunder with Tom Cruise and Robert Duvall. Yeah! <laughs> Hell yeah! <laughs> yeah. Vroom vroom! <laughs> That's all there is for our uh, this week's episode of Film Tank. Oh no, cruise control! Take it I'm, I'm Alex Diekman. It's like with uh, Nick Cheney and Tucson Egan and our very special guest Anna Botazatu. 
thank you again for tuning in to Film Tank. You can catch us on uh, all streaming services. <laughs> we'll catch up with you next time.